Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Sergeant First Class Thomas Payne. Payne is serving with the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, also known as Delta Force or the Combat Applications Group, CAG, in 2015 in Iraq during Operation Inherent Resolve. Now, there's a few things we're going to dive into here to provide a little more context before we get into the incredible hostage rescue that Payne takes part in in October of 2015. Now, the unit that we're going to talk about, that's one of the, the names they'll go by, Delta Force, um, Delta, CAG, the unit, all, all of these different terms refer to this organization, the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment, Delta. So it's a long, it's a mouthful, which is why one of the reasons there's been so many nicknames for it. This is the U.S. Army's elite counterterrorism force. So there's a lot of myths and legends around the organization. It is a pretty secretive group. The actual selection to make it into the organization isn't really public knowledge. Um, it's pretty tightly held. It's a small group of elite soldiers, elite professionals um, that is within the Army Special Operations and the greater Joint Special Operations community. So this is the tip of the spear, the just about the you know, if, if you're working your way through the army and through the special operations community, Delta is, it's at, it's at the top. These are the elite warriors within the United States military that are wearing the army uniform. Now that organization then conducts a lot of operations around the world that aren't always on the front page of the newspaper for a lot of reasons. Um, but it makes it a challenge then when incredible things like this happen in October of 2015, that it doesn't make the news right away. Or if it does make the news, it might not be presented in its full story. For instance, if there is a high-value target that is detained in Afghanistan, rather than announcing that there's a special operations raid conducted with maybe Delta and some Afghan units, it might come out that um, the credit might be, be associated with maybe just regular Afghan units and conventional U.S. Army forces, because then we can portray it not as a big intelligence win, which could could jeopardize sources or the means of gathering that intelligence, and it might place it more on the luck and just good, solid, conventional Army unit um, tactics on the ground that led to this man's capture. So that to say that there's going to be a lot of operations over the course of the last 20 years in the global war on terror that Delta has taken part in that we don't know about, that are still classified for good reason. Now, when we start looking at the Islamic State or ISIS, we'll use the terms uh, interchangeably here. This is an organization that was stood up. Well, it, there's not like a formal date where we said, bam, now you know we form the Islamic State. There's a lot of key dates within the Islamic State history, but they can easily trace their roots back into the 90s. What we know today really took form in 2013, 2014, as they started to really take territory across Iraq. I mean, I think by their peak in 2015, they had at least 30,000 fighters um, under their control and owned 
owned, managed, controlled huge chunks of Eastern Syria and Western and Northern Iraq. I mean, it was an international emergency to figure out what to do with this group that is no longer operating in the shadows. Like we're so used to, you know, one of their, you know, in a certain branch, one of their um, predecessors, Al Qaeda, which was not at all interested in holding territory. The Islamic state sees themselves in a little bit different group. And one of the requirements to maintain that status as a caliphate is going to be holding and managing physical territory. So we see the Islamic state move across Syria and Iraq, really utilizing a couple key international incidents in their favor, which to their credit is smart. It's the time to do it. It's the time to expand and they, and expand they do. The Syrian civil war um, creates some power vacuum gaps is probably a good way to say it that allows for some of these groups to start to step into the fold to provide some of that governance in areas that are that are lacking. And then as the United States exits Iraq, we maybe didn't exit that conflict. The job may not have been done in some parts of Iraq when the United States left is, is probably the safe way to say it. And some of those territories, especially in the West and Anbar province that's predominantly Sunni, wasn't enthralled with the current the status quo in Baghdad and, and kind of their prospects going forward. So they were a little more, there was an opening there for a Sunni group such as the Islamic State to provide some services and provide some governance and law and order um, that maybe be more in favor of some of these folks on the ground. So it was kind of a right, it was the right time for the Islamic state to, to strike and try to expand. And they, and they did. Now the Islamic state throughout their reign of terror, we'll call it was notorious for torture and execution. And there are still, mass graves being discovered in Islamic state territory. So sometimes it was as simple as executing um, Kurdish fighters because they were fighting against the Islamic state and they'd be captured and bam, executed. Other times it might be based on religion. There was a Christian minority in Northern Iraq, um, Yazidi, I believe is the term that were executed in large numbers or sold into slavery, slavery. That's right. In, in, in 2015, there's a slave trade going on in the Islamic State territory. But nonetheless, and there, there were a handful of Americans and foreigners, foreigners not, when I say foreigners, I mean not in the immediate region there. So Americans, um, some British, I believe, and maybe even a couple of Australians and a handful of Europeans that are executed as well. So there's not... You know, what we're not seeing is the Islamic State taking prisoners and trying to negotiate their release. Nine times out of 10, they're using, or more than that, they're using these hostages and these prisoners um, for propaganda purposes. And a lot of times that propaganda is to show that this prisoner has been taken, to execute that prisoner, usually in a pretty brutal fashion, burning them alive, beheading them, having children shoot them. There's videos of, of children being, I mean, I guess we have to say forced, but directed maybe to execute prisoners 
at close range. And then that video makes its way out as propaganda in a couple senses. Look how powerful we are, the Islamic State. Look how how violent we are in a sense to scare others. But then to show, you know, the West and any other allies or, or the Kurds in certain instances when um, when they were fighting up in that part of Syria and into Iraq, don't mess with us. You don't want to be taken prisoner. You know, th- this is a this is a serious fight. We're serious for moving forward. So we know what hostage, we know what prisoners are in for in 2015 when they fall into the hands of the Islamic State. Now, in 2015, intelligence comes about, in October of 2015, intelligence comes about that there is a group of hostages originally thought to be exclusively Kurds. And the Kurdish military steps forward, or, or some members of the Kurdish military step forward and, and speak with the United States, the Special Operations Command specifically, and says, hey, we've got word that 20-ish or so prisoners are in these two compounds in an area um, known as Hawija. I'm probably mispronouncing that, Iraq, just outside of Kirkuk, north of Baghdad, H-A-W-I-J-A, Hawija. So the Kurds identified two compounds where they thought, you know, probably 20 or so prisoners were being held. That information is important, the possible location. But you're talking about a major, major operation to try to rescue hostages. You have to do more than just um, a possible location. You're putting a lot of people at risk. The second piece of intelligence that we've picked up on here, we, Operation Inherent Resolve, the coalition, I'll say, is that just outside of these two compounds are freshly dug graves, mass graves. A common Islamic State tactic, maybe is the right way to say it, is the prisoners would dig their graves, dig a large mass grave, and then after, and then the Islamic State would execute them either in or on the side of the grave. I mean, you've seen these pictures during the Holocaust. You've seen these pictures during the Second World War of prisoners or women and children standing in graves being shot by their oppressors. And then they're already in the grave and you just shovel dirt over the top and move on. That, that is coming in Hoesia. It is, I mean, a day away. How long are you going to wait when you know your people are there? Do you risk that it could be a week or 72 hours? They don't, they don't take that risk. The United States Special Operations Command, along with their, well, the Kurdish military, Peshmerga forces, take the lead. And there's going to be United States Special Operations Command soldiers with them participating in this raid. They take off and land near that compound in the dead of night on, two, on 22 October 2015. Now, as soon as they exit that aircraft, they come under fire, small arms fire from the ISIS forces that are holding the two compounds. One of these two, two, the two people that we know were on the ground for the United States are Sergeant First Class Thomas Payne and another Master Sergeant Joshua Wheeler. Those are the only two identities we know for a fact were on the ground that day. Remember, most of these operations before, during, and after, a lot of it remains classified. Now, Payne and his guys move to the first of the two buildings and go to breach the wall. They have an issue with that, so they start to climb over the wall immediately. And as soon as they start to do so, um, Master Sergeant Joshua Wheeler is shot and killed. So we have an American kill in action on the objective. Payne continues on. And let me step back here and talk for just a brief moment about hostage rescue. 
talk about the most, the, you know, the riskiest, most dangerous operation that could possibly take place. I mean, you're going into an area with the intended desire of rescuing people that are detained. The reason you're there, the enemy knows, is to rescue those people. So the enemy doesn't just have to repel you or kill you. You have to kill the enemy, not kill the people that you're there to help. So you have to be very discerning with where you fire your weapon. have to be very discerning on which buildings you can put a rocket into or where you throw grenades because what good is it to go on a hostage rescue mission and accidentally kill the hostages? So you have to be very, very, very careful moving forward during a hostage rescue like this. But the other challenge you have is the enemy at any point could just decide, let's just kill the hostages. They're trapped, maybe handcuffed, maybe tied, maybe in a cell, maybe in a basement. If you don't act fast enough, you don't have the luxury in a hostage rescue of taking two hours. You got to go fast. You have to overwhelm the enemy and you have to overwhelm them so quickly that they don't have the opportunity, the realistic opportunity to go and execute those prisoners. Because in a lot of cases, that is the action that people would take and you have to be worried about them taking. So from the minute they hit the ground, Payne and his team, it's all about violence of action, all about moving fast. So we just said the Master Sergeant Joshua Wheeler is killed in action early in this raid. Payne moves into the first building. And once he's in the first building, finds the location of the hostages with his team, cuts the lock, and just under 40, I think it's 38 hostages at that point come out. Remember, when they hit the ground, there was uh, word that this might be about 20. Now, they have the cap- they have the capacity. They're going to barely have the capacity, but they've already freed more than they thought they were going to. But word comes in that the next building over, so 38 hostages leave the compound. Payne gets word over the radio that the next building over, the other assault team hitting that second building, is under intense enemy fire. The Kurdish and U.S. forces are borderline pinned down. For whatever reason, the direction they attacked, the enemy set up in that position, or they, they were sleeping there, whatever it is, that spot's taking heavy fire. So... Without hesitation, Payne says, let's get in the fight, and gets moving. Runs directly to the sound of gunfire, climbs on top of the building, uses a ladder, climbs on top of the building, and starts engaging Islamic State fighters in the courtyard and area below with small arms and grenade fire. Now, while he's up there, the Islamic State fighters are trying to survive. They're trying to, to defend their area, if they will. So one of their... Tact, something they try is to detonate suicide vests inside the building that Payne is standing on top of. Now, the idea is going to be this isn't a, a super strong modern building. They're trying to collapse the building in on itself. Now, that's going to be a problem for a lot of people. It's going to be a problem for Sergeant First Class Thomas Payne standing on top of the building if the thing collapses. It's also going to be a problem for what would end up being 37 hostages bound inside that building if it starts to collapse on top of them. Now, these blasts don't just damage the structure of the building and and put it at risk of of failing, but it starts fires. And fires inside of buildings mean a lot of smoke inside of the buildings. And you can imagine that inside, it very, very quickly turns hot. It turns very challenging to see. And it makes it very, very hard to breathe. Thick, thick smoke. But there's hostages inside. And the mission that started first class Thomas Wheeler is on that day is hostage rescue. So he gets down off the roof, finds a door, and begins to move into the building. 
a few times he tries to go in and, and pull these hostages out, but the smoke, the fire is so severe that he has to hold his breath to move in there, has to almost jump through flames. And let's not forget that he's still taking enemy fire. The Islamic State fighters are not gone. They're being engaged by their forces all around, but they're still very much on the objective and very much don't want pain to free these hostages. Nonetheless, he makes multiple trips into this building that is burning, full of smoke, and can collapse at any moment. Payne eventually cuts the lock to the door that is holding the hostages. 37 more hostages come out. That makes a total of 75. Remember, we thought it could be around 20. Not sure. Around 20 was was the number. Um, But... 75 at that point make their way out to the American helicopters waiting nearby. Now, Payne doesn't leave the building at that point. No man left behind, right? So he re-enters the building time and again. This building that is at any moment ready to collapse enters the building time and again to make sure that there is no man left behind, which how easy would it be for that to happen? With smoke and fire and explosions and gunfire and parts of the building starting to collapse, of course there could be somebody left in there. We don't know if these prisoners are malnourished, if they can't walk, if there's somebody with a broken leg. We don't, you know, he, he's making these multiple trips in there to make sure everybody's out and doesn't leave the building until the last is finally out. He gets everybody on those helicopters, and now they're they realize that these prisoners include not just Kurdish fighters, but Kurdish civilians as well as some Iraqis. They load the helicopters and they're so full, so overweight with hostages, which talk about a good problem. When you get on the helicopter and you don't have a seat because you rescued too many hostages, we're going to chalk that up in the category of a good problem. We'll deal with that. We'll deal with that when it comes. That's the case for Payne and his men as they load the helicopter. They have to stand for the ride back to the coalition base because there are so many rescued hostages, 75 in total on those helicopters. So eventually this mission would be somewhat declassified, maybe is the right way to say it. Um, Parts of it enough to be able to, to do two things. One, um, be able to talk about the, the passing and the sacrifice of master Sergeant Joshua Wheeler. So we know a little more information about um, what happened to him that day, but also in order to push forward the, Medal of Honor recommendation and eventually um, recognition for then Sergeant First Class Thomas Payne. Um, and that Medal of Honor would be approved. And on September 11th, 2020, President Donald Trump would award the Medal of Honor to now, um, now Sergeant Major Thomas Payne for saving the lives in one of saving the lives of 75, not Americans, Kurdish and Iraqis. Kurdish and Iraqi fighters and civilians in an Islamic state prison set to be executed likely the next day on October 22nd, 2015. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.